A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase Today. Visit Douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is Douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Jonathan, can uh, mm-hmm. can we see your phone? Absolutely. Amazing. Can you describe what version is this? This is a BlackBerry Key 2. This is basically, well, so it's the second last BlackBerry branded phone that exists. About two thirds of the front of the device is the screen, and the bottom is a classic style BlackBerry keyboard. I noticed that when you pulled it out, Cherise laughed. Do people laugh? Can I just clarify? It was not a laugh of mockery. It was a laugh oh, of like, amusement. I've never, I've not seen a BlackBerry in many years. The BlackBerry movie. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Okay, picture a cell phone and an email machine all in one thing. It's called a BlackBerry. Hmm. Try typing with your thumbs. You said they were the best engineers in the world. I said they're the best engineers in Canada. So it's a comedy. Oh, yeah. I think that people, when they see these devices these days, it's an object of, if not mockery, amusement. It's not something that people take terribly seriously. But I got to tell you, I used to cover tech during the heyday of BlackBerry. And BlackBerry, not very long ago, was not a joke. This device, like the category of device, the smartphone, I don't think you could name anything else. Like, that is the device that changed the world more than any other I think, in our lifetime. I'm not sure what you can mount a defense of that would be the the device more so that, like, has, cha- has radically transformed the world than these smartphones. And the first smartphone was the BlackBerry. It was a Canadian innovation. And it was the biggest smartphone in the world. Actually, it was the only smartphone in the world. That was not a joke when Canada was leading the future. And it was hard to imagine it going in a different direction at a certain point. That's, like, smartphone and BlackBerry were kind of synonymous. It did not work out that way. And so now, while Steve Jobs is sort of revered as this, like, magnificent figure of history, this incredible innovator, probably one of the most famous people. Oh, yeah. Important. In the world. Mm -hmm. Jim Balsillie and Mike Lazaridis are not names that I think most school kids would know. But – these guys are about to get a lot more well-known, more well-known than they've been in, in many years with, with this movie. And again, they're doing so. The first blast of attention they're getting in years is as the subject of, of mockery. So they're not getting remembered for what they actually did. They're not really getting remembered as uh, the guys who created the device that changed the world. They're instead, I think, remembered as the guys who momentarily owned the entire global smartphone market but blew it. But did they? But did they? 
I don't know what's in the movie. I haven't seen the movie. The movie does not claim to be terribly faithful to the truth. But I have lived through this, as I say, as, as, as a tech journalist, though my focus was not on consumer electronics. It was hard to be covering tech in Canada at the time and not be aware of BlackBerry and what was going on. But more to the point, I have spoken to Sean Silkoff. And Sean Silkoff wrote the book that this movie is based on. He and Jackie McNish wrote the book Losing the Signal, which was all about the rise and fall of BlackBerry. So Sean and I spoke, and in a moment, I'm going to share with you some of that conversation, some reflections, and some history. Because what we're going to do today, Jonathan, Charisse, I'm going to tell you exactly how a Canadian company briefly held the world in its hands and then dropped it. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Chris Rondolo, Alastair Kellett, Gail Laws, David Reimer, Dennis Raphael, Kenzie Trail, Suzanne Faiza, and Jim. I'm Jim, a professor of economics in Vancouver. I support Canada Land because it is my go-to podcast for keeping me up to speed on important Canadian issues. Listening to journalists rather than reading their news reports deepens my learning and increases my curiosity about news events. We've just released tickets to our first live French language event in Montreal. Join us on June 8th at the Phi Center for Detour Live with Emily Nicolas. Together with a panel of special guests, journalist and Detour host Emily Nicolas will address the online hate that women increasingly face when they speak up publicly about the issues that they care about. Tickets are on sale now, but free if you are a Canada Land supporter. If you're in Montreal, we hope to see you there. To get your tickets, go to phi.ca. If you're a Canada Land supporter, check your email. We have already sent you information on how to get your tickets for free. Let's skip the part about who these guys really were and their biographies and their childhoods and how they came up with this amazing invention. Or at least let's gloss over all that stuff very quickly. Mike Lazaridis was born to Turkish immigrants because of Greek ancestry, born in Windsor, Ontario, and was one of these kids who was just an incredibly gifted, uh, both in math and engineering, got really interested in computers, radio technology, by profession, electrical engineer, computer scientist. His eureka moment was actually kind of obvious, and I hesitate to make too much of it because what was it? He knew this for years before he actually made it. He knew from a young age that whoever connected computers to wireless communications was going to cash in big. That was going to be something special. But the fact is, by the 90s, everybody knew that. The internet was already getting pretty damn big. Cell phones were getting pretty damn big. And it was kind of clear that whoever was going to smush together your chocolate with my peanut butter first and make that something that you can do on the go was going to win big. And a lot of people tried. So why did RIM succeed where so many big players fail. What's RIM? Oh my God, of course, people forgotten this. BlackBerry used to be called Research in Motion. I don't know what the research was about, but the motion part I get, because they were always a wireless company and they were involved. Actually, they were around for a long time before the BlackBerry. There's a whole successful history of Research in Motion before the smartphone era. But these guys were watching as the big players, the Nokias and the Motorola's and everybody was like trying to take us like, you know, we'd have the era of the Filofax and the personal organizer and like. Filofax? I'm thinking like a Greek pastry. Like <laughs> It was like a book where like everyone was trying to get a portable device that could do everything. Okay. Right. That had your calendar. I mean, that is what a smartphone is now. Was it called now. a Filofax though? Before the electronic version, there's actually a Jim Belushi movie that all the plot revolves around a Filofax. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Don't Google that now, John. Okay. All the big guys were thinking maybe too far ahead because they were like, we need to get a device that does everything. And so they had these devices that did a lot of things really poorly. So how did RIM succeed? And why did RIM succeed where so many else failed? It was because they kept things simple. They focused on one killer app, email. And here is what Sean Silkoff told me about that. This is the mid-90s when everyone is starting to use email. Hotmail is created, I think, in 1996. And by 1996, 97, Research Emotion is saying we should have a device that can send emails back and forth. That was what Mike Lazaridis 
innovated on. That's what he did. He built the world's first workable mobile email machine. You know, they had gone from pagers and there was a lot of pressure to stay with pagers. And he said, no, we have to be able to send and receive email on the go. And that was no small feat. Getting the antennas to be small, like tiny little modems is what RIM specialized in previously. Getting everything into this one holdable device. And of course, the keyboard. And a keyboard that, like the ergonomics work. With two thumbs, you could type. It just worked. And they innovated with push email. And they had a very complicated back end. Like they hosted all the stuff themselves on their own servers. And so the notion of like, you don't have to sit there and say, get my email and wait as it very slowly delivers. Your email is kind of waiting for you. So basically the idea of like it being constantly connecting and you get the email moments after it's sent and wrong basis as opposed to having to manually refresh. That's right. And that notion of constant connectivity is I think one of the kind of defining ways that our lives were changed. A lot of it had to do not just with the efficiency and the miniaturization of the hardware, but the data. Because if you think about what networks were able to handle at the time, remember that detail. Keeping things as small as possible Mm -hmm. was a big key to their success. As for Jim Balsillie, he wasn't the technologist. He was the business person of the bunch. And, you know, I can only infer from the previews of this movie he's portrayed as this aggressive shark of a business person. Is he an inventor? Is he an innovator? Should he be celebrated? I think you can't tell the story of the BlackBerry without talking about his contribution. Who was Balsley? Was he like the CEO of RIM? So these guys ultimately were co-CEOs. But I'll back up and I'll give you a little bit more of who is Balsley. The top level parts of his biography will just sound like a typical Canadian establishment blue blood, right? This guy... Harvard Business School, before that Trinity College, before that he literally played lacrosse and hockey with George Cope, the future CEO of Bell Canada and Wade Oosterman. It's like almost like they had like a future telecom executive boys club. He was a hard partier. His nickname was Balls. (laughs) But he is not exactly the stereotype blue blood that may be described by all that. They didn't call him Silly Balls? (laughs) Oh, it's perfect. If we could turn back time. (laughs) But listen to this. At Trinity College, his squad was actually kind of interesting. Here's who he hung out with. Malcolm Gladwell. Of course he hung out with Malcolm Gladwell. Adam Agoyan. Jim Belsley actually acted in an Adam Agoyan student film called A Clockwork Trinity. Oh, my God. And then there were people who you might expect as part of this group. Andrew Coyne was there. Nigel Wright, future... uh, Chief of Staff to Harper? Waylon Smithers to Harper's Mr. Burns, yes. Balsillie also has Métis heritage. His dad's Métis. And interesting family history. His grandmother on that side of the family once managed exotic dancers in Winnipeg and was known as the queen of the strippers. The book posits that maybe Balsillie was like a tryhard because he was a little bit of a fish out of water amongst all of those other guys. He was a bit more working class in his, in his background. Fast forward, he muscles his way into an equal partnership with Lazaridis into the early research in motion. Famously, he mortgages his house to do so. There are two things in the history of BlackBerry that, uh, above anything else, you have to credit Balsillie with in terms of what led to the success. The first one was that he is the one who carved out the deal with telecom carriers, who really had no idea at the time what to do with wireless data networks. By the early 90s, it, there was a lot of promise and hype and hope about wireless data, but no one could figure out what the market was. You had these two wireless data networks that were ancient and tiny in terms of their capacity by today's standards, but they were empty. No one could figure out what to do with them. So that's when the folks at Research in Motion said, okay, well, how about we do wireless email and we'll rent some of your space on your network? And Bell South was so strapped for cash for its wireless data network that they took the five or six million bucks that RIM was offering just to sell a bit of time and fill up this vast empty network that they were having difficulty selling into. I find that really interesting that, you know, and I remember that time when like your cell phone, your flip phone, whatever would have like, you could like pay money for a ringtone or something like, like that's what they were doing with data. And uh, I guess this was a a deal that they couldn't resist just to get free cash. Yeah. Why did these data networks exist if no one was using them? They didn't know yet. And in Silkoff and McNish's book, they talk about how like they were trying everything. In fact, RIM was involved in one of these experiments. Uh, there was an early payment system at Skydome for like your hot dogs. Rogers tried to use wireless data networks to predict when delivery trucks were going to arrive. And then they brought it to the consumer. But when it was the wireless carriers trying to offer you 
you know, data products, well, how good are they going to be at that? You know, so what you had was these wireless data networks kind of sitting dormant and there was an opportunity there that they saw if we can actually just get the space and manage it ourselves, we can do something with this. So that was one business innovation. The other major thing you got to credit Balsley with was his marketing strategy. And here, Sharice, I'll ask you to read this passage from Losing the Signal. The solution, Lazaritis in Balsley decided, was an unorthodox plan to infiltrate Fortune 1000 companies. RIM made it easy for influential managers and executives to link the addictive BlackBerry system into their corporate email without involving the IT department. RIM even priced the devices so they fell within executives' discretionary spending budgets. The idea was to get a critical mass of top executives in a company to use Blackberries before their CIO realized a new technology had infiltrated the business. So those are the two innovations Bowsley brought from a business perspective. First off, he was able to basically buy from Bell South the wireless data network capacity that the carrier didn't know what to do with. And he was able to get this thing popularized by just putting it in hands, either by making it as cheap as possible or giving it away for free to top-level executives. And if you think about that, once your boss is hooked to, like, always-on-the-go email, as we all are now, but once your boss is hooked to it, they are expecting to be replied to. Oh, so it's his fault. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you basically make their efficiency. First of all, you, you you turn them into an employee who is never not working and somebody who is communicating constantly around the clock and expecting to get replies on the same schedule. And after that, yeah, it's going to just proliferate throughout these companies. Wow. Somehow it didn't occur to me that this was, could all be pinned at the hands of one person. <laughs> it also seems like they were trying to just sort of do this backdoor access to these executives without going around the official uh, sort of technology IT channels. For sure, because yeah. w- when you deal with the IT department, they're like, well, we have to support this. We have to do tech support for this. We have to change our whole system. But this was an infiltration attempt. Yeah. And it was very deliberate. It was very intentional. What a monster. No, but like there, there are laws across the world to try to undo, try to yeah. undo this. <laughs> In any event, BlackBerry becomes incredibly popular amongst the jet set business class, not just executives, but also world leaders. And one key moment in the history of BlackBerry and the smartphone, as Sean told me, was 9-11. I mean, the only way people could communicate after the towers were hit were by Blackberries. And in Washington, you know, this company had tried hard to get into official Washington with very limited success. And on that day, when the plane hit the Pentagon, that knocked out communications as well. In Washington, the only people who could communicate were the people who had Blackberries. And one of the first things that happened when Washington got back to business a few weeks later was every member of the House of Representatives was issued a Blackberry. And suddenly, Blackberries were used to convey global secrets. I mean, this was... You know, this is a company whose devices were, think about it, carried the secrets of presidents and princesses, CEOs and celebrities. I mean, it really did change the world. I find that so interesting, both that, like, there's this period where the Pentagon is hit and communications are out, and the only communication that's happening amongst Washington power people is over these Blackberries. Why was that? When the third plane attacked the Pentagon, that knocked out most cellular and landline phones for people who are working in government. Hmm. Communications down the chain of command went dead writes Sean in his book. And the only way people were able to communicate was over their Blackberries. And it's also interesting to know that once you've got all of these different elected representatives in the States and all these world leaders, all those secrets, as Sean says, are are going through these servers in Waterloo. (laughs) So that really establishes the Blackberry as the device of choice for this type of person. And pretty soon we've got Barack Obama coming into office. And one of the major narratives is that he's either smoking his Newports or he's on his Blackberry. And he's got a whole fight with the Secret Service over whether he can keep it or not. And he wins that fight. And that's when we see Crackberry entering the lexicon. And it just goes like juggernaut from there. They created the smartphone market and owned it. And they had 50% of the global cell phone market. I mean, even iPhone doesn't have that now. Nobody has anything remotely close to that. And then they fucked it all up. And nobody can agree on why that happened or if it could have been avoided. But there are theories. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Why did they fuck it all up? Let's count the theories. Okay, theory one. They just got soft. And here, I think that there is a, a very strong Canadian element to this particular theory. By 2007, when the iPhone is released, RIM is an absolute darling of a company in Canada. They have been celebrated, the co-CEOs, Valsely and Lazaridis, for years. This is a phenomenon. This is the pride of our nation. And the co-founders were crowned and anointed in every way imaginable. And they were used to that kind of life. Jim becomes a philanthropist. He founds the Balsley School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo, the Center for International Governance and Innovation Think Tank. He donates all this money for a Balsley Family Hospital Wing. Honorary degrees from Wilfrid Laurier University, Dalhousie, U of T, Trent University. He is an honorary captain of the Royal Canadian Navy. And Sean told me this anecdote about how the first time he actually met Balsley, it was at the uh, Chateau Laurier Hotel in Ottawa, and Balsley is wearing a full naval uniform. I think this is a very Canadian thing, that once you are in the top level of establishment, it's very comfortable. I mean, Steve Jobs also had a lot of success by the time he came up with the iPhone. But there's a different attitude, I think, when you are in a very competitive atmosphere with other people who are trying to take it all away from you. And he'd already lost a lot and had to fight to get it back. These guys were hella comfortable and maybe distracted. Balsali had a wild hair up his ass about buying a hockey team. He wanted to buy an NHL team and move it to Hamilton. And he tried that three times. It did not work out. Which team did he want to buy? The Pittsburgh Penguins the Nashville Predators, and the Phoenix Coyotes. Wait, he wanted to buy American teams and bring them to Hamilton? He did, and he had to be coy about it and at times promised that he wouldn't bring them to Hamilton. And then he was discovered to already be selling tickets. And his bid was rejected by the NHL with prejudice. I see. He failed to pass what they called their character test for reasons that will soon become clear. As for Mike Lazaridis, he too was enjoying his perch. 
He was made in 2006 an officer of the Order of Canada. He was also a member of the Order of Ontario. And he also starts this phase of like, now I'm going to give back and be this sort of lion champion of, of research. He founded the Perimeter Institute of Theoretical Physics, the Institute for Quantum Computing. So maybe by this point, there was a hubris to them. They had already oh, yeah. done it. And the idea that anybody could come take it from them, I think, uh, wasn't contemplated. And perhaps there was also an arrogance to them. And uh, Perhaps. <laughs> Famously. That's like, that's like the premise of the movie, I, I assume. There's this amazing detail in this Bloomberg Business Week story from a decade ago. And there was this one uh, person, one I guess, former I guess, was executive there who told this quick story. One thing we missed out on was that Justin Bieber wanted to rep BlackBerry. This is 2007, 2008, the peak Bieber. He said, give me $200,000 and 20 devices and I'm your brand ambassador, basically. And we pitched that to marketing. Here's a Canadian kid. He grew up here. All the teeny boppers will love that. They basically threw us out of the room. They said, this kid is a fad. He's not going to last. I said at the meeting, this kid might outlive him. Everyone laughed. <laughs> I think that their tone deafness for things cultural is, mm -hmm. is a theme that's going to come up again here. Yeah. They were proudly Canadian in a way that you could describe as, as arrogant. They were not watching the world for what the world's next move was on their space. They actually expected the world to come to them. They were very proud of being Canadian. I mean, Jim had even said, you know, when Americans would call up and say, oh, we'd love to meet with you, you know, investors or iBankers or other technology companies, Jim would say, great, when are you going to be in Waterloo next? Like, you know, Waterloo is where it's happening. You know, he wanted to send the message, you know, we're here. We're not going to come at the drop of a hat down to Manhattan or Silicon Valley to grovel. So that's theory one. They got soft. Here's theory two. Lennon and McCartney had a fight and broke up. Jim kind of broke the law. Rim kind of broke the law, but Jim knew about it and was a part of it. What he did was he backdated stock options. And what that is, is when you're trying to entice people to be executives, you give them stock options that allow them to buy your company's stock dated to a certain point in time. So even though the stock may have skyrocketed, they can buy them when their option comes up for what it was worth at an earlier date. And they changed those documents. They changed the documents in a way that benefited Jim Balsillie and Mike Lazaridis for millions of dollars, but also lots of other executives. There was an email chain that came up where they were, you know, asking other people to like change the dates on documents so that they could buy them for a price based on a time when the stock was worth less. But it is illegal and something that it should be said kind of everybody was doing. He's never been charged or convicted of a crime. This is a securities violation by billionaires, so it's not going to be a criminal matter. But it was pursued, and then it was settled with a hefty payoff. Jim never claimed to be innocent. He never claimed that he never did it. He, he said he didn't know it was wrong or something like that. This may sound like a routine thing in the history of any company of this scale that shit like this happens. It's like lawsuits, some security stuff. Find me a company where this hasn't happened. But for the relationship between Mike Lazaridis and Jim Balsillie, this actually is what broke up the marriage. This is why mommy and daddy don't talk anymore. What Mike Lazaridis had to say about this after he had to give testimony and felt like, you know, it's been a long time since anyone's spoken to him harshly, and here he's getting deposed and asked all these bracing questions, and he was furious with Jim. And his point of view on this was, I don't know anything about this. For years now, I just signed what you put in front of me. How could you put me in this position? Jim's position was one of equal feelings of betrayal, of like, I have made so many moves to make you a gazillionaire, and now one thing goes sideways, and you are shocked and appalled, and your monocle is falling out. I asked Sean Silkoff why these two guys, who had done so well by working together, why would they let something so seemingly minor break up the band? And he agreed that it had a lot to do with their reputations. This was really the first mark against them. And they had come to really, really, really care about their legacy, their reputation, their record. I think that was the case for Mike in particular. And then it turned out to be a, a key pivot point. And interestingly, it's also, you know, I mean, the film adaptation, obviously, it's going to be different than the book. It's They have two hours to tell a story. Uh, it's a piece of cinema as opposed to a, a book. But it's interesting that they also glommed onto that as a central point uh, in the story and make that a core theme of the story. 
And, you know, the board demanded that Belsley step down as a C- CEO after that. And, and they basically lost control of the company in the wake of that relationship getting. Yeah. So essentially what we're looking at is two people who got real comfortable in their own success and this idea that they were these two great, amazing tech guys and then got caught for something that they didn't, never thought they would get caught for. And all the while unaware that something was about to smack down from the heavens right on their head. Yep. Which brings us to theory three. It was the iPhone, stupid. Is a revolutionary mobile phone. Three things. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. So Steve Jobs rolls out the iPhone. The press calls it the Jesus phone. And it is clear to everyone in the world, except for BlackBerry, that this is a game changer. To rivals such as RIM, Nokia, and Motorola, the iPhone's popularity was illogical. Its battery lasted less than eight hours. It operated on an older, slower second-generation network. And as Letteritis predicted, music, video, and other downloads strained AT&T's network. RIM now faced an adversary it didn't understand. By all rights, the product should have failed, but it did not, said David Yak, RIM's chief technology officer. Everything that Mike Lazaridis as an engineer toiled to perfect when he created the BlackBerry, the iPhone sucked at. You know, battery power. The first BlackBerry lasted a month on one AA battery. Oh, I forgot. It lasted forever. That was, that was a thing. Monochrome screen. Like, like this was a functional business tool and it would last for almost a month. The iPhone, you have to plug it in every day. So as an engineer, he's like, what a piece of shit. It's an energy hog. Yeah. Data efficiency, forget it. Like this guy had struggled to get the bits as small and efficient and elegantly moving around so that you could just rely on your email communication. The iPhone is a monster. Music files, pictures, video, no cellular network, he thought, could handle this thing. Consumers are going to get killed on their bills. The networks are going to crash. And the price The price was absurd because the BlackBerry, you remember, like this was a product for rich people, for people in suits, and it cost $350 for an entry-level BlackBerry at the time. The iPhone is debuted as a product that's basically pitched to hipsters and priced at $499. Who's going to buy that? Who needs a $499 phone? So when you consider their initial take on the iPhone, that this isn't a threat because all the things the BlackBerry excels at, the iPhone sucks at, they were 100% right about all of that. It just didn't matter. And that's one of the most amazing things. They were right about every single one. You know, the AT&T network crashed from so much Apple use. There were lawsuits. BlackBerry was now on its back foot. Jim and Mike were no longer in agreement with each other about the path forward. And their board was rapidly losing confidence in both of them. And this is when they started to chase trends instead of setting trends. What did BlackBerry do? BlackBerry said, well, this is interesting. Let's develop a touchscreen phone, but it's going to be the BlackBerry version of a touchscreen phone. And their device was called the Storm. So instead of doing everything, tapping this magic software on your screen, the actual screen is a giant button. And so when you want to tap a letter, you'll click down and the entire button, the entire screen, which is floating on top of the device, will click down and you hold this click. And it's like, oh, yeah. I'm a BlackBerry user. I can relate to this smartphone because it makes a clicking sound. They didn't have enough time to develop it properly. This was new technology, a new approach. And so it was very buggy and it flopped and it just felt like dead technology. So that was the first mistake they made. The second mistake they made was instead of abandoning it and going all in on a touchscreen, Mike decided he wanted to perfect it. He said, well, let's fix the bugs and then the storm will be great. So we did a storm two and they were already working on storm three <laughs> when when one of the carriers said, you know what, just, just give us a touchscreen phone. So they lost about a year and a half doing that. And then they thought their problem was the browser. And so they lost some time on that. And then they couldn't make the decision on what to do about what operating system to build. And they they wasted time on that. So by the time the BlackBerry comes out with a full touchscreen phone with proper 
underlying software is uh, early 2013. And that's like six years after the iPhone had appeared. You don't have six years in technology to come up with a proper response. And I think the roots of that were the fact that they were doing it from Canada and uh, that they were so mired in what had been you know, very successful thinking and product strategies for so many years that they didn't realize or appreciate how much the paradigm had changed and that they just had to do everything in an entirely different way from the word go. And and they didn't. They then chased Apple on another product. They put out this atrocious tablet with a late and inferior product. And then there was this hilarious period where finally they're like, maybe we have to actually try to make this cool and hip and make this a lifestyle product. And they tried to like out Apple Apple with marketing. They named Alicia Keys their global creative director. Oh, I remember that. Amazing. I remember that. So it's 2013. This is, Alicia Keys is cool, but she's, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it was an odd choice. The, the kids love her. You know who else <laughs> the kids love? You too. And this is maybe my favorite anecdote about this phase of BlackBerry history because there's this scene where Mike Lazaridis actually goes and is like walking down the beach with Bono and they're trying to arrive at the best philosophy for what their ad campaign is going to be. And this is what they come up with. Is it just like a generic YouTube video? It's not even on a roof or anything. It's in a black void. Here okay, comes so the slogan. Oh. Blackberry loves YouTube. What? Not that necessarily the, the other way around, I guess. That was the slogan? I mean, this. I'm glad. Okay, I'm glad Blackberry has its own taste and preference. It's not very good taste. <laughs> I just got to say okay. here. Um, Blackberry Loves You Too was a massive international ad campaign. The central concept of the celebrity endorsement is you too loves Blackberry. Like that's what you're paying for. You're paying for the celebrity to say that they love your product. Wait, was this like a double entendre where it's like Blackberry loves you? I must is that, be. Is that what that they was? They must have thought they were being clever. Uh, Blackberry loves you too. Apparently they just talked about how what this is really about is love and we love you, you too. And maybe that's what this campaign is about. And it's cheesy for Bono to say, I love Blackberry, but we just want people to know that you love you too, the band. So do we. It's okay. I do not like you too, but I have to respect Bono because that motherfucker then turned around and did a deal with, with Apple. Apple. Yeah, I remember this. And, and Alicia well, Keys. When they put the, the album on every single iPod, it was so annoying. <laughs> but, but Alicia, Whatever, Bono gets but paid. But the Alicia Keys thing famously, remember, she was see, like on Twitter, you could see the metadata for tweets and how people are tweeting. So Alicia Keys, the global brand ambassador for Blackberry, was tweeting from an iPhone. That was the thing I remember That's amazing. being pointed out at the time. They were toast. There was no out appling Apple. There was no celebrity that was going to fix it for them. They were done for. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Maybe you thought that space is infinite, that it has no particular shape, or if it does have a shape, it's like very circular because things are orbiting one another. Well, to hell with that. You're wrong. It's square out there in space. I don't know what that means, but the web you could think of as a series of squares in space if that helps you. I am helped by Squarespace. I've built websites with it. It's really effective and powerful and useful. It takes like no time because they have templates pre-made by really good designers and you just plug your own information in. They've got all kinds of little features. If you want to collect money, they've got you. They've got it plugged into every possible pay platform from PayPal to Apple Pay to Stripe, Venmo. That's already on board. Analytics for gauging how well your website's doing and like tricking it out and optimizing for the best performance possible. Blogging tools. Remember blogging? It never went anywhere. You need tools to do it. People still read these things. Listen, head to squarespace.com slash CanadaLand for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Once again, that's the offer for listeners of this show. 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain at squarespace.com slash CanadaLand. And that brings me to my own pet theory about why they blew it. Our final theory. the Canada of it all. It's not really my theory. This is a theory that appeals to me. I can't take credit for it. I first read this from Michael Geist. And here I bring you back to that point that I highlighted earlier about how that original genius stroke of theirs was just like making the data 
as like literally conservative. They were conserving. They were conserving bandwidth. They were conserving. Everything was conservative. It was conservative use of space on the device for it to be the right size. It was a machine built to fit within the tight constraints of Canada's shitty telecom networks. Slow, expensive cellular data, super expensive texting fees. But here came a device that would let you do a workaround. You don't have to spend money on how many texts you're going to. Remember, we used to have to pay for texts. You got this many texts a month. It would deliver push email with the smallest amount of data transferred possible. This was not some flashy, colorful American device. This was not an, an entertainment machine promising you video games and videos, not trying to be the best calendar or calculator clock. Everything. No, it's a portable email machine that just works, conservative, constrained. It was built to cope with scarcity. So that was a Canadian invention. Steve Jobs was an American, and his strategy was, fuck you. Fuck you. I am not going to shrink down my vision. I am not going to shrink down the data so it fits on your highway, AT&T, Verizon. I'm going to give people what they want, and the people will speak, and they will use, and they will demand, and mm-hmm. their oversized demands will force the old yeah. guard to build bigger highways. Like, the cellular providers will have to create more bandwidth to accommodate because the consumer wants what the consumer wants. I think it is wrong to ask, why did BlackBerry blow it? How did BlackBerry blow it? I think the better question is, like, how did they even have it to begin with? Like, that is the unique thing, that there was this moment, this quirk of history, a weird glitch in time, when Canadianness was actually a competitive feature and not a bug. And the constraints of our mentality actually put us very briefly ahead of the curve. But the empire was always going to strike back. It was always going to happen. And Apple, remember, they already had the iPod. They had already created this incredible consumer device that people just fucking loved. And ultimately, this fight that everybody likes to perceive, and there's like a season of business wars of iPhone versus BlackBerry. And then it's true, BlackBerry tried to fight iPhone. You know who ultimately killed it for them? Because even after the iPhone came up, they were still booming in international markets, and they still had years of growth ahead of them. Who ultimately drank their milkshake? It was Google. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The ultimate ninja move comes from Android a few years later when they get an app store. And by then, Verizon's like, yeah, sure, you can have an app store. And Google says, that's great. Get, and guess what? The 30% cut that we take from selling apps on our app store, you can have that. Here, just go take it. Here's some free money. Mm-hmm. Go, go nuts, Verizon. So suddenly you're handing the telcos not only a, ve- a huge chunk of free money, but you're also giving them an incentive to put Androids everywhere. And that really killed BlackBerry's business. And, and BlackBerry could not have anticipated that. That was a totally disruptive move. And remember, because the market for apps was so shut down to the handset makers, Remit never really had to worry about having apps any more complicated than things that work perfectly well for enterprise customers or these, you know, ringtones and and brick breaker games uh, for consumers. And suddenly the world opens up and you have Apple and Google who are software companies and work with app developers waltzing in with a ready-made market crew of developers ready to put instant apps out there. And BlackBerry does not have that. Wait, so BlackBerry didn't really buy into apps as a concept. Like, were they sourcing different app developers for their phones? Oh my God, it was a nightmare. Tell us what you recall. So basically, yeah, BlackBerry had its own operating system, remember? Like that's, mm-hmm. and you had to develop an iOS app, you had to develop an Android app, you had to develop a BlackBerry app. So a BlackBerry Classic, my previous phone, ran on this BB10 system, and you could see the apps giving up on it. The big, you know, Twitter, Facebook, you see them giving up on it one by one as they would either stop rolling out updates or do what Facebook did, which is the latest update literally just deletes the app and replaces it with a link to the Facebook website on your home screen. <laughs> They just stopped bothering. Yep, they just stopped bothering. Well, Apple and Google had a huge head start in the whole concept of, like, inviting other developers to play on there. I mean, I think BlackBerry's whole thing was, like, this is ours. Our server is secure. You know, I think they were really ill-prepared to create something that an API lets developers just... Is there any way they could have actually won here? Yes and no. Like, I don't think that there was any path whatsoever to this fight of, like, BlackBerry beating the iPhone. But... Jim Belsley actually realized that pretty early, and he wanted to do what you're supposed to do, which is pivot, right? In a very dramatic and dynamic way, he was ready to abandon RIM's core business, or at least really underserve it, and pivot into the future, and he saw the future. 
he thought the future of the company was not in handsets. It was going to be in BBMs. What's BBM? That was a messaging platform, instant messaging. His last stand as RIM's leader was a plan to radically reorient the business away from hardware and towards instant messaging. And here again, a very conservative and Canadian mindset. We still have this thriving handset business. It's actually on the way up in international markets. We still have all these old guys in suits who are like, I'm not giving up my BlackBerry. I don't need this iPhone. That's our business. We need to double down on that. And Lazaridis was like still, I think, in an engineering mindset, like, I still need to beat the iPhone. Like he was still trying to make a, a better BlackBerry. So here's like this incredibly complicated challenge for Lazaridis and the rest of the company to try to actually out iPhone the iPhone. And here's Balsley saying, no, just as our original killer app was just like email on demand on the go, here's this super simple thing we have and we have a head start with, and that's what we should double down on. He saw the future. Another thing that's forgotten now is how popular BBM was. BBM was the forerunner of Signal and WhatsApp and arguably could have beaten them all if they had taken some different uh, strategic choices. It's one of the greatest challenges companies encounter. You know, once you get something that works and makes a lot of money, it becomes the thing you try to protect, even if protecting it in the long term is not the right choice for the business. BlackBerry certainly encountered that in the early 2010s when BlackBerry device sales were in a free fall. And Jim Balsley had this idea, let's go all in on BBM and make it available on every other phone. And there was a strong countercurrent of the company that was like, well, if we do that, we'll threaten BlackBerry sales even more. Well, guess what? BlackBerry sales went to zero. And if they'd done this strategy, who knows, maybe they could have stemmed the tide and become the one WhatsApp going forward and look how valuable WhatsApp became. So sometimes trying to protect the golden goose is probably a sensible short-term strategy and a disastrous long-term one. And it's super difficult to know how to navigate that because you have to answer to a board of directors. You have to answer to shareholders. What's interesting is that like the concept of BBM actually would have been an amazing app that could have been used across different types of phones and different networks. But the fact that they wanted to keep it to BlackBerry was the problem. Like, it could have been Signal. It could have even been, like, an early Slack. But it's not because they kept it to BlackBerry. Yeah, they were locked into the idea that they were the makers of things. And uh, as we discussed this, well, just last week, Sean Silkoff in the Globe and Mail reports, BlackBerry exploring potential breakup of company. Right, so BlackBerry still exists. It's still worth billions of dollars. So how are they making money then? If I recall Sokoff's article, it's like this car operating system called QNX that they acquired at one point and patents. So that seems to be where a lot of it comes from. If you trace back the origins of some of the biggest technologies, there are Canadian roots, you know, Corel, which Photoshop and all the graphic software, Nortel, even like eBay, YouTube has Canadian roots, but nobody seems to be able to actually keep the company in Canada and create something like an Apple. Except for Pornhub. Still in Canada. Mm -hmm. Except for Pornhub. And Shopify. And Shopify. So, I mean, you keep saying they blew it, but aren't these guys all still mega wealthy? Oh, they are both ridiculously rich. He's spending most of his time on a yacht these days. A Uh big fucking yacht. Like, you're not going to believe. I don't know exactly, but I think Jim's a billionaire. And I think Mike is, Mike's quite wealthy too. But I don't, I I don't exactly know. Because you don't exactly know when they sold. What is Jim up to these days? Uh, he uh, is very interested in Arctic exploration. The uh, Franklin Expedition shipwreck uh, thing that uh, uh, Stephen Harper was very excited about, Peter Mansbridge and them, uh, he put a lot of money into that. He's become a fierce advocate for funding tech in Canada, and he's always got editorials about how we're doing it wrong. Ottawa's got to do it this way and not that way. I think that that's, uh, you know, if his legacy is not going to be the inventor of the smartphone that changed the world, it's going to be actually a very Canadian legacy. And it's not without some credibility. Like, I think that both of them really invested in Canada having a vibrant tech sector. And, uh, you know, they've invested in other companies that have done very well. Jim's made money on other companies. And it's true that in the Waterloo region, they created, like, a a tech scene. Mm -hmm. Nothing to the scale of what they did. Uh, I think Mike's whole quantum computing thing has basically fizzled out, and he's off on his yacht. So I'm not sure that he's really putting as much work as, as Jim is these days into keeping things alive in Canada. So that's it. 
That's your Canada Land episode. If you like this podcast, if you listen to it regularly, if you value the work that we do here, I want to ask you to consider supporting us. It's something that we rely on, uh, listeners like you, deciding to pay for journalism. As a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. We give you lots of stuff. Our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merchandise, uh, tickets, invites to our live events, virtual events. But more than anything, the reason to support us is because that makes you a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You will be keeping our work free and accessible for everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by Bruce Thorson, our senior producer, along with Tristan Capicione, our audio editor and technical producer. We had assistance this week from Cherie Suturin and Jonathan Goldsby. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.